0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from James Jordan on the subject of evangelism and how we should maybe rethink how we approach unbelievers with the gospel in our day and age. And just a reminder, if you have not yet downloaded the Theopolis app, that should be available in your app store, and it has video and audio materials that we think will sharpen and encourage you. In addition, we want to remind you about our Theopolis blogcast. That's our other podcast that is made up of audio recordings of our written material on our website. So go over there and subscribe to that Theopolis blogcast, and we look forward to serving you over there. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing how we should rethink evangelism.
1: Well, I always enjoy coming here, and it's nice to see y'all again. Dan had asked me this year to talk about, essentially, the relationship between a church, your church, and all those other people out there, and how does what starts in the church as the kingdom of God make an impact in the world. That is a broad subject about which one can say many things. And what I want to talk about today, in this hour, is rethinking a little bit how we express the gospel and what the gospel is in the sermon, which unfortunately is not going to be quite as sermonic as it is a lecture, (laughs) because that's what I'm used to doing, talk about the context in which we live in the world and what God has given us as the center of the world that then flows out. And then tonight I want to talk about the importance of music in the kingdom of God, because music is the primary mode by which we offer a sacrifice of praise, and it has its own attraction. And so if we're going to have things to say, we ourselves need to be reshaped into the kind of people who say the right things. And One of the primary things the Bible gives us, that the Christian religion that God has given us for that, is a certain kind of music and worship music, and we as Presbyterians don't tend to be real big on music, okay? If you want music, you go to the Lutheran church. And so, if that's a weakness for us, and we need to think about it a little bit, and I'll ask you this evening to think about it a little bit more with me. So, this morning then, with that in mind, having selected these three areas to address, Let's think about what the good news is and how the good news comes to us. What is the gospel? The gospel just means, as you know, good news. But I think most of us, because of our Protestant background and because of our heritage in the United States, we identify the gospel as the good news that God forgives sinners and saves sinners and puts us into the church and makes us ready to go to heaven and be resurrected at the end of time, which is an aspect of the Gospel. But it's not really entirely what the Gospel is about. The good news that God saves sinners, the good news that God delivers people from bondage to sin, is really old news, it's not new news. And If you'd like to hear a wonderful passage in the Bible that gives expression to what we call the Gospel, it's the opening sentence in the law of God. Which says in Exodus 20, I am the Lord, your God, your God, not somebody else God, your God, the God who's on your side. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've already redeemed you. I've saved you, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods in my presence. In other words, put all your faith in me. So what does the statement say? It says that God has chosen us. He's our Father. It says that he has delivered us from sin and death, and that we're to put all our faith in him. And then everything else is an outworking of that. And if you put your trust in me, then don't have any graven images, don't carry around my name in an empty fashion, don't murder people, don't commit adultery, etc., etc., etc. Okay, that's an outflow. So if you want to say salvation by faith alone, here it is. Put all your trust in the God who is on your side and who delivers you from death and sin. Well, if that's old news, then what is the good news? What is the new information in the New Testament? If We already know that. If as Jewish believers and God-fearers in the Old Testament, we already know that God saves sinners and that we're saved by faith and faith alone to start with, and then that flows out in good works. Well, then what is the new good news? Well, actually, the new good news is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been resurrected from death and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and now rules the world. And that's what's new. God saves people and we still live in this world that's got problems. That's great, but that's been known ever since God killed animals and made skins for Adam and Eve. What's new is that now the theocracy has come and all nations are going to be discipled, and that a man who is without sin and who is resurrected and glorified is on the throne of God. What's new is that death has been conquered once and for all. And that's what the New Testament stresses because it links the good news with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just forgiveness, but now something beyond forgiveness, glory and resurrection. Now, that's because the gospel is linked with as the answer to death. And I think if we begin to think not just about salvation from sin, but also deliverance from death through resurrection, we can have a somewhat broader and a little bit more accurately New Testament understanding of the good news, and that will give us a little bit better way to deal with people around us in our world today. So I'd like for us to think about death for a few minutes, and I'd like for us to think biblically about death and that death has various aspects and dimensions to it. Obviously, when we think of death, we think of the human body expiring, the soul returning to God, waiting for the physical resurrection, and our bodies beginning to rot and go into the ground, and so forth. That's death. But that's not the only thing the Bible means by death. For instance, you're very familiar, I'm sure, with the definition of death that Christians usually give. God says to Adam and Eve, you will die. What is death? Death is separation from God. Okay, That's why people in hell, although they're still alive, they're dead because they're separated from God. Well, that begins to get us into an understanding that death is a little bit broader than just physical expiration. And let me talk about three aspects of death that emerge from what the Bible says and that we see around us all the time. The first and the Protestant understanding of death, we may say, is that death is condemnation and being sent to hell for our sins and that we experience a sense of guilt because of our sins and coupled with that is fear, fear of God, fear of judgment, fear of condemnation. And when people experience this fear, then they flee for refuge, to the mercy of God, for salvation. And that is the aspect of death and resurrection with which we're most familiar. And our tendency is to say, if you haven't thought that way, if you haven't felt fear of condemnation, and if you haven't come to God to be justified and had your guilt taken away by the cross, If you don't understand that you're saved by faith alone, well, you're not really a Christian. But you see, the problem is, nowadays, the people that we meet are not aware of any guilt. That's not their experience. It was Luther's experience. We'll talk about why. It was the experience of the people who founded the Protestant form of Christianity. But that had not really been that much the experience of people for centuries before that time. It was building. And it's not the experience of people today. And if we're going to start with people where they are, we need to ask how we do that. Okay. One answer to the question is, well, you take your unbeliever and you keep working with him until he understands the law, until he understands he's condemned, until he's afraid of God. Then you can share. Salvation by faith alone, that God forgives sins, that Jesus has paid the price, and then he can be baptized and come into the church. I'd like to suggest that that's not the only workable way to deal with people outside the faith. Because let's talk about another aspect of death that people experience. And that is loneliness and despair and a sense of bondage. Actually, death as separation. When people feel alienated. Separated, alone, that's an experience of death, according to the Bible. In the Bible, when things die, they're often ripped in half. That's often the symbol of death, to be torn in half. Even Adam, the first time he experienced death, he went into a deep sleep, and while he was in a deep sleep, and the Hebrew word for deep sleep is not the word for sleep that's really deep. It doesn't say a sleep that is deep. It says a completely different word, deep sleep. And while he was in deep sleep, God ripped the bone out of his side along with a bunch of skin and made a woman. And he didn't wake up. That tells you he was in deep sleep. This okay. wasn't any ordinary sleep. While he was there, he was torn in half. Then he comes back to consciousness again and it's a new world. Okay? It's different. And there's a new covenant relationship on the other side of this Death-like experience. This word deep sleep is the word that's used for Jonah in the whale. And when Jesus says his own resurrection is like Jonah coming out of the whale, you see, this deep sleep is like death. And death is being ripped in half. In Adam's case, it was a neat experience. For us, it's not so. And that's why you experience death when somebody you love dies. Or when your children grow up and move away. Or when you have a fight with somebody you're close to and they're not friendly with you anymore and you grieve over that. What's happening? That pain is the pain of death. Why do we have funerals? Catholics have Requiem Mass for the sake of the person who died to pray for his soul. That's not why we have funerals. We have funerals for the sake of those left behind to help them through the transition of this being ripped apart because you feel horrible death-like pain and despair when you are in isolation. This is what Job experienced. Now, it was bad when all these terrible things happened to him, but what was worse was when his children were killed. And then when his three closest advisors, Job was the king, and these are the king's friends, you know, they turn on him, all that he could stand, but then he felt isolated from God. That was The worst, isolation. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, shows people in hell all isolated from one another. Loneliness, despair, isolation. That can be fear too. And people fear to be alone and they try to get away from it. So they go to bars and drink. They're not married yet. They go to a bar and drink and engage in wrongful activities. Why? Trying to make connections with other people. All different ways people do this. Well, you know, the gospel to such a person is the Trinity. That God exists as three persons who are a family and who are always giving to one another and always loving one another and always sacrificing for one another. Each person of God giving things up out of himself for the sake of the other two and receiving back. That this community exists. And to a great extent in the early church, that's the way the gospel was presented to the people in the Roman Empire who were full of loneliness and estrangement and were looking at all kinds of religions to try to get some type of sense of community. And they came and they said, only the Trinity offers true community. The early church worked on the doctrine of the Trinity for this reason. It was part of this way of presenting the gospel. You're lonely, you're estranged, you're isolated, you don't know where to go, your husband's left you, come in here. After you've been here for a while, you're going to learn more and more about sin. You're going to experience guilt. You're going to understand justification by faith. But the doorway in is that God offers you community. He offers you his triune life. You get a new father. You get a brother. You get a husband. You get a counselor. You get a matchmaker. That's what you get, this new family life. And I'm going to suggest to you that that is sort of where we are today. Okay, that in terms of presenting the gospel, we should be very alert to that early church way, that the good news is that this new community life has been established by the Holy Spirit in the world. And after a while, people come in through that door, they'll begin to learn about sin and guilt, and they'll have the Protestant understanding of things, but that might come later. But there's another way in which people experience death, and that is chaos and anarchy. If society falls apart and this is death as disintegration this is another biblical picture the death means things disintegrate it's kind of like separation but on a broad scale and you know what happens to your body when you die it starts to disintegrate and the body politic of a society can disintegrate and when things are out of control when things are anarchical When we don't know what's going to happen next when we're afraid we're afraid Once again, fear is a problem. And in the medieval Christianity, the gospel came as an answer to anarchy. And this is kind of interesting to us because it sets us up for the Protestant Reformation. But here you have all these cultures in northern Europe and you have the disintegration of the Roman Empire and there is anarchy everywhere. Imagine living in an inner city where there are gangs operating all the time. You don't have... The police in the United States don't dare do anything about it. They'll be accused of racism if they try to control these situations. So they walk the fine line between allowing anarchy and trying to put a stop to it and being accused of racism. Okay, we're increasingly facing this. This is anarchy. What is the good news for a situation in anarchy? The good news is the theocracy. It's that Jesus is king and his law is law. That uh, sounds a bit strange to us that the good news comes as law. But you see, we're not afraid of the law as Calvinists. We know that the law has a place. And when you have anarchy, then law is a good thing. It shows people how to live. It's good news that God has told us how to live and He's not left us in complete anarchy. And so in the early Middle Ages, biblical law, a new way of life, a new structure. A new order came as the answer to all of this anarchy into which the old world had collapsed. And that was good news because it removed fear and it gave life in that kind of death, the death of anarchy and disintegration. Well, now we can begin to see that there's maybe a historical order in which these aspects of life and good news have come, these aspects of Jesus' enthronement forgiveness of sin, the spirit coming to create community and answer loneliness and despair. Jesus as king and his law answering anarchy and disintegration. It comes in a certain order. And when we get to the Protestant understanding of the faith, when we go to people and we present the Protestant, particular Protestant form of the gospel, we're assuming that those people know two things. We're assuming that they know who God is and we assume that they know what the law of God is. We know who God is, and they know what he says. And so let's take a typical way of presenting the gospel that has been effective in the past, but now is not very effective. And that's to go to somebody and say, if you died tonight and you stood before God, and God said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Well, if somebody has a Christian background in a Christian culture, then they have a general idea of who God is. God is a person. And when I die, I'll stand before this person. They may not think very Trinitarianly about it. Usually they don't. But they think of God as some type of a person. And I'll have to give an account to him. And God has standards. And I've either lived up to those standards or I haven't. And there's some general connection between those standards and the Bible. I mean, the ten big ones, you know, we ought to have those on the wall of our courthouse somewhere, which is kind of meaningless, you know. (laughs) Are there any courthouses in America that are going to enforce the law against graven images? No, but as a symbol, you know, conservatives want the Ten Commandments on the wall. Well, that's good, it's a symbol, and people in a conservative society have a general awareness that God has standards, and that God is going to have people give an account, and they're going to stand before a person. But now you go out and ask people this, and they say, what God? Why should I assume that when I die, I'm going to go before some person? I think I'm just going to move up to the next plane. The saucers are going to come and I'll live on them. Or, who knows what they'll say. And who's to say what's right and what's wrong? You probably think homosexual activity is wrong. You probably think sex outside of marriage is wrong. Who's to say that? How many people in America today do you think believe that sex before marriage is wrong? Not many. Okay. Okay. That is a very distinctively biblical idea. Outside of Christianity, very few people think that. They think it's wrong for women, but not for men. Okay, That's disintegrated. And so we find that ministries like Coral Ridge have an appeal, which is where that form of the gospel comes. It has an appeal to very old people in our society, people who had a Christian background and who already presupposed this. And that's great. I mean, that's a strength problem is for young people younger people it doesn't connect you've got to go back behind that and so that's the question i think we face that there's a sense in which protestant christianity built on the early church teaching everybody who god is and that god is a person you don't relate to god by being mystically absorbed into something but by dealing with the person and talking to him it took several centuries to get that across in the medieval church taught the entire western world that god has a law he has a standard there's right and wrong and when we got to luther luther was so bowed down by this that he was ready to hear yes but the law is the law structures society but as far as you're concerned you're saved by faith you can't be saved by keeping the law you've got to trust god for salvation but now if all the waters run out of that tub and people don't know those two things anymore we're sort of back to where the early church was, and I think we are. In all of these cases, however we present the general good news of the kingdom of God, we're dealing with a fear of some kind of death. If a person fears condemnation from God, he fears that God will kill him and send him to hell, the gospel says, no, 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 trust God. He loves you. Salvation by faith alone. You're never going to do enough good deeds to earn your way to anything, trust in Christ. If a person fears being separated and isolated, and that's the kind of death he's experiencing because he's one of the millions of women who've been divorced and abandoned. Or children whose parents are abusing them. Or young girls whose stepfather is abusing them. This is all over our society. Okay? Well, this fear and loneliness and isolation, the gospel has an answer for that kind of death, or if you're experiencing a total loss of control and your life is falling apart, or your society is falling apart, or your church is falling apart, whatever, your job is falling apart, and you're afraid, the Bible has an answer for that, okay, and the answer is that death has been overcome in life. I'll just read you a couple of familiar verses to show you. Romans 8, verse 15 says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Okay? Not fear, but adoption as sons. Or Hebrews 2.15 tells us that the gospel that Jesus came, that he might deliver those who through fear of death were enslaved all their lives. Fear of death. What is the command that Jesus gives more often than any other command in the gospel? Every time he shows up, he says, fear not. So there's something very profound about fear and death. And see, our way of understanding theology, our way of understanding the gospel, focuses on sin and guilt and forgiveness, which is very important, and it's an aspect of it. But if you become alert to fear and death and read through the New Testament again, you'll find the New Testament is constantly talking about fear and death and being resurrected out of death and delivered from bondage to fear. That's not the category we usually think in, is it? We don't usually think of going to somebody out there and saying, you're afraid, you're lonely, experiencing death. God says you can have new life. You can come in be part of a new family. We want you to come on in. And we'll just wash you as you come through the door. And then you can sit down and have dinner with us and be part of this family here. Okay? Well, I thought I had to have deep conviction of sin. I'm not even sure what sin is. Oh, you'll find out what sin is. But right now, you just come on in and be part of this family. We're not so used to thinking that way. But I think the Bible gives us plenty of grounds for using that kind of approach not the only approach see one of my professors said when i was in seminary said there are many doorways into the kingdom of god but once you get in you find out all the other things (laughs) you come in through the door of justification by faith you're going to find out about community life you come in through the door of loneliness and community life you'll find out about sin and justification we'll talk about that more in just a moment i think that today We need much more of an emphasis on this early church form of things. I think today most people are lonely and isolated. We don't even have good neighborhoods. When I was little, the streets were straight, and you had people who lived right next door to you and across the street. Now, what are neighborhoods like, you see? They're built so that the houses are relatively isolated from each other. People often don't know who their neighbors are. When you move into a new neighborhood, how many people come over with food or to say hello? It used to always happen. You know, you kind of get pounded with food from your neighbors for the first two, three days. We have moved many times and have never once been greeted by neighbors when we moved. That's just different now. Neighborhoods aren't strong. Parish life isn't strong. We drive by ten churches to get to the church that we agree with. Or maybe to put it better, the church whose worship we can stand. (laughs) And you can't just tell people to stop doing that, but on the other hand, it doesn't make for as good a community life. It creates a problem for us. And look at all the divorce and family breakup in our society. And even the things that people turn to, you know, like internet or television, they tend to be individuating things. You're on the internet, you're talking to other people, but you don't see them, you don't smell them, and you're not eating with them, and it's just you and the computer. That's not wicked. But all of these things conspire to create senses of isolation. And so, let me suggest some ways to think about this. And I don't have all the answers to this. I'm not in a church you know, that's got a tremendous outreach program that's is wrestling with these things. But I think these are things for us to think about and ask ourselves, are there improvements we could make in the face we show to our society and how we deal with other people? And the first is, We need to welcome the ignorant into our churches. Now, y'all are an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Okay, now, I know about the Orthodox Presbyterian church. I have been in them before, and as a theologian, that's my theology, so I don't happen to be in an open church right now, but I'm in a church that was just like one, okay? And we tend to set the bar real high for people to come in. That's our tendency, to be very doctrinal. And there's an unbeliever out there and he wants to come into church and we want to make sure he understands a bunch of things before we baptize him. Similarly, with our children, we don't want little children at the Lord's table until they're old enough to understand a bunch of things. We want to see self-conscious and intellectual profession of faith before the person is welcome to the family meal. Now, I would like to suggest that that mindset that we've kind of have, and it's not just Presbyterians, it's Lutherans, it's all over, strikes against the implications of infant baptism. Okay, What does infant baptism mean? Jesus says, you must be born again. Well, people aren't born at the age of 30 with a lot of self-awareness. Okay, However you take that, born again, born from above, it means you start out as a baby. Jesus says, unless you accept the kingdom of God Like a little baby, you can't come in. That means that all baptism is infant baptism. Somebody is converted at the age of 60 when he's baptized, that's infant baptism. Because he's coming in as a baby, right? Am I right? Well, if that's true, how do we deal with babies? How much do we expect babies to understand? This baby has to understand conviction of sin and forgiveness. Well, no, they're not going to understand that. You know what babies understand? They understand that they are lonely and they want to be picked up in hell. That's your job. (laughs) With babies, it's just to hold them. Feed them and hold them. Babies want community. They're kind of used to it. And when they come out into this lonely, cold world, they need to be swaddled up and made to feel tightly secure like they were in the womb. That's why newborn babies are wrapped tight Because that's what they're used to. Then they can begin to live in a world where there aren't things that they can touch in every direction. But that's why they need to be touched and helped until they begin to get into those terrible twos and don't want to be touched all the time and make a little distance and start moving out. But you start by pulling them in tight to the community and feeding them whenever they're hungry. When we were having children, there was one school of thought that said you should never just demand feed your baby. Schedule your baby. Let the baby cry for four hours until it's feeding time. The baby's supposed to learn from that. I don't think babies learn anything from that? You know, they might learn something when they're six months old. But well, little babies, they just learn that they can cry and cry and mommy won't pick them up. I don't think that's really healthy. Now look, apply that to evangelism. I think we should be ready to baptize anybody who kind of wants to come in. You know, if there's some girl out here who's had three children out of wedlock and she's been all beat up and everything, and you tell her about how she can come in here and be part of a new family, she doesn't know anything about the Bible, much of anything else, you've talked to her for a couple of hours and told her just a little bit, and she says, you know, I just wish I could be part of that. I don't understand anything. You say, well, come on, I'll baptize you right here, and you can come on in and be part of this meal, and she will begin to grow. And maybe after a while she say, I don't like this anymore, and leave. And then you have to deal with that. But from what I can tell, the door is pretty wide open. And the way we ought to think about people as they come in is we ought not to expect them to know much more than babies know. But then we would expect them to grow like babies grow. How do babies learn to talk? They learn to talk because other people talk to them. See, we have this ridiculous notion in our philosophy that comes from The Enlightenment that says, how does the person know he's a human being? And it's, I think, therefore I am. I'm self-conscious, and that's how I know that I exist. Well, that's not true. (laughs) Babies don't come to self-consciousness and say, well, I exist because I'm self-conscious. I think, therefore I am. It's quite the opposite. Babies respond to somebody else talking to them. If you don't talk to your baby, he'll never learn to talk. So, if someone comes into the church from the outside and they're all ignorant... How are they going to grow? They're going to grow when they're talked to. In the pulpit, other people talking to them, they learn to talk a new way, they'll learn to think a new way, they'll learn new patterns of thought, and if the Holy Spirit is continuing to work with them, they'll grow and develop, just like a baby. So I think the first thing we need to say, and there's no, I have no formula here, I'm sure each case needs to be considered on its own merits. But I think we need to reverse the trend that we doctrinalistic Lutheran churches, doctrinalistic Baptist, doctrinalistic Presbyterian churches, we kind of want everybody to be mature before we let them in. We need to think the other way. How that works out practically is going to depend case by case. But we should think the other way, and we should think of people coming in as ignorant babies and beginning to grow and learn. The second thing I think that we should think more about is that we are gathered at a table and it's a family gathering for a festive meal on the Lord's Day. Okay. Now, what has happened over the last, oh, 15 years in our Presbyterian churches is that many churches have gone to weekly communion. Y'all have weekly communion here? Well, weekly communion is not good enough. Okay. We got weekly communion, but now it's time to take another step because just Having weekly communion is not exactly what the New Testament is talking about. Okay. Let me give you the hardcore Lutheran, hardcore Presbyterian, hardcore Baptist form of the gospel. This is what Jesus should have said, but didn't. You know, A wealthy man gave a lecture series and invited many people to the lecture series. But people made excuses. So he went out in the highways and byways, got a bunch of ignorant people, and drew them in for the lecture series. And the house was full. And that's what the kingdom is like. A great king gave a marriage lecture series for his son when he was married. And invited people to come. Well, you know, that's not what it says, is it? Mm -hmm. It's actually food that they were invited to. It's a feast. It's dinner. The gospel invitation is not an invitation to ideas. It's an invitation to food. You say, wow, that just sounds weird. (laughs) Well, think back to the Garden of Eden. What is there? Food. That's all it talks about. Listen to the language. I mean, we're used to this. We read right past it. Okay? What's the first thing God says to Adam and Eve? God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over everything. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree that has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. To every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and every living thing that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. Then it says in the next chapter, before Eve was made, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Food. God says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the days of it you shall surely die. Well, he says every tree shall be food for them, so that implies that someday they will, and there'll be some type of transforming experience for them as a result. Well, then he makes the woman, and then the test that the serpent brings is about food. Food's a big deal. Why? Well, because God made us hungry. You know, if you don't eat, you'll die. Adam wasn't supposed to do any great good works in the garden. He was just supposed to pick the right food off the dinner table. There was a tree of life and there was a tree of knowledge. But it wasn't going to be some work. He says, ah, I've got to go eat now and take a pick. No, he's going to be constrained because his stomach's going to say, it hurts. He's going to say, what's this? I'm hungry. You know, Amos, well, I'm hold off a while. He's going to get hungrier and hungry, and he's going to be compelled and forced to eat something. Well, that's not some good work. That's necessity. So he's going to have to say, you know, I need something, and I need a free gift from God, and God has given me these free gifts, and he says, take one and not the other, at least not yet for the other. Now, that's what food is. Food is a symbol of the fact that we don't have life in ourselves, You cannot just step out under the sun and draw life. And you can't fast and pray and say, Oh, God, send me your Holy Spirit so that I just have life all the time without eating food. No, the Spirit works through food. It's even weirder than that. And I'm sure that you've heard this before, but I'll remind you that all the stuff you eat is dead. The only living thing you eat, I had some this morning, is yogurt. It said, living cultures. But for the rest... The meat you eat is killed. It's dead. And if you don't eat it soon, it'll rot. And the tomatoes and the bananas, if you don't eat it, you know what it's going to do? It's going to rot. You kill it, and you've got a day or so to eat it before it rots. And in that span of time after death and before decay, that's when you eat it. But it's dead. Now, how is it that I continue to get life by eating dead things? It's because the Holy Spirit works through this dead food to give me life. That's why we pray, Lord, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. And in a special way, we do the same thing today. We have wine, we have bread. They're both dead, but the Holy Spirit is going to work through them to give us not just ordinary life, but new kingdom life. So now you see, that's why food is important. Because we're desperate, we're hungry. And so, that's what we invite people to, and it's at the table that we speak. Now, this may sound a little bit radical. But then that's my job. You know, I would like to see our churches conduct the service more from the table and only use the pulpit for the sermon so that from the very beginning, we're gathered around the table. We're invited into this meal. We know from the very outset, we're here for dinner. Now, there's also going to be teaching services like right now. Right now is synagogue teaching event, and tonight is too. But there's this one time when we're gathering for dinner, and it's a dinner that's very open. The parable says, "Go out on the highways and byways and get all these ignorant, stupid people who barely even know what's going on. Just drag them on in here and feed them." Okay, it's kind of wide open. Jesus feeds five thousand here, four thousand there. You know what we do is we tend to have closed communion. You know, if somebody comes from another church, we want to interview them. Do well, you understand this? Do you understand that? We need to think more the other way. Then if we begin to emphasize this, then the pastor can dress up in a white robe like Emeril Lagasse and be the chef who presents the meal. Okay, You know that's what a priest is in the Old Testament. A priest is a holy chef. What do those priests do? Read Leviticus. Almost the only thing they do is prepare meals. They check the animal out to see if it's fit. Then they prepare it as food for God, which symbolizes people. People are being brought to God, For him to eat into his body, so to speak, to take into fellowship with himself. And so the priest also checks out the people to see if they're blemished You have a white spot on your arm or something else. But he's treating the people like food. That's his job. Clean and unclean, that's about food. He's a food guy. And so that's what he's doing. That's what is always going on. And all the singing that's added in the temple service is around these meals. So, we need to think more about food. We need to think about having meals that are open to the community. Maybe You do this, but invite people in. Time is escaping me here, but those are the two main things I wanted to say. That somehow we need to think more about what infant baptism means. That we shouldn't be afraid to draw people in who are severely ignorant and begin to work with them. In the early church, people kind of came in and went out, came back in and went out, Because they did pull in ignorant people and start working with them and then they'd get offended and they'd leave and then, you know, they'd get them back. We tend to want all that solved before we let them in in the first place. We need to reverse our way of thinking. And then we need to think about a family gathering and a meal. Because a person who doesn't understand any doctrine still knows that he's hungry. And deep down inside, a person that God is working with knows that he's hungry for something more than just bread and wine. He's also hungry for fellowship with God and that's given him, pictured for him. Even babies can understand that everybody else is having a piece of bread and they're not being given one. And that's why they want one. And I'm sorry to say that many of our churches still don't want to do that. Give it to them. You asked for it, so there (laughs) it (laughs) was. The third thing that I think that we need to think about is enthusiastic singing. This should be a festive meal. I'll talk about that tonight. The fourth thing that we can think about in a new way of reaching out is parish outreach. And that's one of the hardest things for us because, as I say, we drive past ten churches to get to this one. I do it too. What else can you do? You really don't have any choice. But if we can begin to think, how can we change this? Then you begin to think, okay, the houses that are right around here, I don't know where they are, but I'm sure there's some people who live right around here, They're our special responsibility. Wes Baker, a missionary in Peru, when he went down there and they started their church, he was working with the church and had a local pastor, what they did was they put on their clerical collars, which gets them in the doors, and they started going door to door. All the people, starting with the house that was nearest to where the church was, and then just reaching out all around the neighborhood, and they would go to the door and they'd say, I'm Wes Baker, and this is Pastor Pedro. And we're pastors of this church over here, and we're your pastors. you go to church anywhere? I don't know. Were you baptized? Well, yeah, I was baptized. But I haven't been to Mass in many years. Well, we just want to let you know that we're your pastors, and we meet over here on Sunday. And we'd love for you to come. We'd like you to come. And even if you don't come, we're still your pastors. And if you have any problems, you let us know. You come down. Your child is sick. You know, if you have to go to the hospital and leave your children with someone, you come down and let us know. Because we are here to serve you. We're the pastors for all the people in this area. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? They're just claiming. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Now, I don't think, you know, Americans would probably give you a stranger look than Peruvians do when you say that. But we need somehow or other just to realize that this already is Jesus' world. Okay? He's already king. And if they say, well, I'm a member of Trinity Lutheran over here, you say, that's great. Pastor so-and-so and I are good friends. We meet each other all the time. I'm glad to know that. And well let me tell you, you know, if there's ever a situation arises and you can't get in touch with him and you need somebody, go ahead and give me a call. I'm not trying to get you into our church. I'm glad you go to Trinity. You keep going there. But if you ever have an emergency and you can't reach him, we're right down the road here. There's all kinds of things you can do like that. And then the last thing is, of course, if we're going to have effective outreach, we need to be saturated in the Bible. But I think in our churches, we already know that. (laughs) We already know that we need to know the Bible well. We need to sing the psalm. We need to be as thoroughly acquainted with the scriptures as we can possibly be. Well, I'm out of time, but I hope that this has at least given you some things to chew on, to think about a different way, the openness of the church, and the need for us to think again about exactly how we present the gospel. Because modern man is not worried about hell, but he is worried about loneliness. And you can still bring them into the church
0: If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.